Hey everyone and welcome to Motherkind. It's Zoe Blasky here. This is the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity and self-awareness. Thank you for being here. I am so grateful that you've pressed that little play button and you are here with me right now. How are you all doing? I asked on my Instagram last week how everyone was feeling and I got back hundreds of responses saying that you are feeling pretty exhausted. I think this time from when we get back after October half term all the way up to Christmas can be so tough, quite gruelling in fact. There are so many expectations on us mothers at this time of year, especially around Christmas planning. And I know that personally I'm deeply impacted by the dark nights when it's dark by 4pm, I find that really hard. So I'm going to be over on Instagram offering lots of support, tools, tips, ideas. So make sure you're following at zoe.blasky. On to this week's episode, and it is a parenting-focused one this week. Dr. Mary Han is a groundbreaking psychologist and parenting expert with over 20 years' experience, and Mary Han works with children and teens who experience difficulties managing their emotions Maybe they worry excessively, have low self-confidence, find managing friendships difficult, or maybe just get a little overwhelmed with life's challenges. So in this episode, you are going to learn why right now is such a hard time for our children, how to know if your child has anxiety or is it just normal worry, how to help a child who might be experiencing anxiety, and importantly, how to raise resilient children that can handle life's challenges. I loved this episode. I learned so much from it. I hope you do too. Please do let me know over on Instagram what you thought. Here it is. Maryham, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited for this conversation. I wanted to start with something that you said, which is raising confident, resilient, happy children has never felt harder. And I was wondering why that is. Oh, that's a really interesting one. I think the reality is that children are growing up in a very different world than when we were growing up. I think a lot of the time we can slightly get sucked into this whole, well, when I was younger and it was so much easier. But the reality is they're living and growing up in a digital era where accessibility to information is rife and that information isn't always reliable. And I also think that this notion of comparison is huge and they don't get the opportunity to switch off. You know, before, you know, I'm 53, so long time since I was young, but you came home from school and that was the end of it until the next school day, whereas that isn't the case for our children and particularly for our teens, where actually the conversation that they had, the comparison, the angst around their confidence comes home with them when they're checking their social media, when they're communicating with friends. So I definitely think it's a very different landscape. And that's feeding into, isn't it, particularly anxiety. I read a couple of stats in prep for this. One was that on your website, One Million Moments, that one in six, five to 16-year-olds have probably got a diagnosable mental health condition. And then I read somewhere else that it was higher than that. I mean, all these different stats that it's one in three children will experience severe anxiety by the time they hit 18. And I really wanted to spend some time unpacking that because I know it's something that so many parents, including me, think about, like, how can I help my children if they are anxious already, or if I think they might have a predisposition to it, or how would I handle it if it did happen? Perhaps we can start there. What do you think is driving those 
statistics. I think you're right in that the data that you had, the one in six, was data that came out in 2020. And I think when you actually speak to practitioners, the reality is it probably is more like one in three or one in four. I mean, I think that is the reality. And I do think that one of the aspects that drives it is this constantly being switched on and not really having enough opportunity for our children to unwind and to switch off. I think that's a huge aspect of that whole thing that feeds into anxiety. Because if you think about it, you know, the best way that I try and describe what anxiety is, is if you imagine a seesaw, when our children or our teens are in a situation where they feel supremely confident and comfortable, their seesaw is completely imbalanced. What they perceive are the resources they have to deal with the situation are equally met and matched with what they perceive are the resources they have to deal with. So demands and resources are equally balanced. When they're in a situation where they feel overwhelmed or anxious, the seesaw's tipped. And what happens here is what they perceive the demands that are being placed on them far outweigh what they perceive they have as resources to cope with it. And whether you call it the gap between what the demands and what they have, or whether you call it the seesaw, it's the same. That's what causes the anxiety. And what's crucial is it all relates to this notion of perception. It doesn't matter if we think our eight-year-old or our 15-year-old can cope with a situation. Our view of it is irrelevant. It's how they see themselves in that situation. It's the same for us as well. But I think that's the challenge that we've got around anxiety. I think that's why we've got so much prevalence in it is because we've got this backdrop of all of this digital age, this constant inability to switch off, and then this constant comparison and feeling overwhelmed. And I think that's the bit that as parents, that's where we can help. I think that point around always being on. I really want to unpack that because I wonder, there's so much parental fear in today's society, isn't there? And, you know, I'll speak to some mothers who will be doing clubs with their quite young children or extracurricular stuff constantly. And I totally understand why that is, because there's also so much fear mongering about the state of the economy, about future jobs. I'm wondering, you know, something else that you said was that actually, if we can instill in our children a self-belief and a confidence, the rest will work itself out. And yet what I see is sometimes a focus or an idea that if we can instill in our children enough skills and achievement and attainment, the rest will work itself out. And they're completely different philosophies to life for ourselves as well as our children. Can you talk to that and how perhaps a parent who might be stuck on that, I guess it's fear-based treadmill of, but my children has to do all these things in order for them to keep up. How do you talk to a parent who's in that place? Yeah. And I think that's such a difficult one because that's where the comparison comes in as parents. It's the keeping up. It's about being really clear. So I often talk about this analogy. It's not mine, but I've taken it from a book that I've read, which is just incredible. And it's this notion that our children are a building under construction. And our role as parents is to provide the scaffolding for that rising build. We don't get to shape or influence what that build is. We just provide the scaffolding to catch any falling masonry or timber. And we provide those solid foundations. We make sure that that building rises strong and therefore meets building regulations because we don't inhabit it, our children inhabit it. So what's crucial when we're getting sucked into this thing is really thinking, what is it that I want to make sure I ensure that I do as I raise my children that helps them become the adult that they're going to need to be to navigate the world. And I mean, with every ounce of my being, it is not around skilling them up 
but actually helping them have that supreme self-belief. And that's really tough. I've had conversations. I'm sure my sister won't mind me saying this. She's got her elders now taking GCSEs. And it's that whole, you know, how do we encourage them to do their work and achieve? But ultimately, we provide the environment, but we can't make them do the things that we think that they need to do because we have this fear that they're not going to have enough GCSEs or they're not going to be able to have write these amazing things on their CV or on their university application or they can't get into a secondary school because that genuinely I think that and it's not about finger pointing at parents but I think we do have to take a step back from that because when we feel anxious in that comparison because we think everyone else is doing it we're tutoring our children we're doing all of this extra stuff we create an anxiety in ourselves which transfers to our children we don't praise enough the kind of you're just a really kind compassionate person who thinks of other people and that's actually probably one of the greatest skill sets that they're going to need when they go out and get a job because most jobs that we have nowadays are all around people I can hear the passion in your voice. It is so challenging, though. It is so challenging, particularly when everyone around you is doing it and there's this fear. It takes an absolute clarity on your parental values. I have this because I think it's an easy shortcut for me because I'm someone who achieved a lot academically. And yet internally, I didn't have that scaffolding that you were talking about. And it resulted in a breakdown. I didn't have the skills and resources. I didn't know how to access, you know, my own inner parent. I didn't have confidence. I didn't have self-belief. So I think it's easier if you've been a parent who has experienced that chasm between what I achieved academically, but actually I can see how lacking I was. I think that's a really helpful shortcut for me because I think, well, hang on a minute, if I'm pushing my little girl to do her homework that's exactly what you know happened to me essentially and I can see how you know I would have achieved way more actually in the workplace and way more probably with even what I'm doing now had I had that scaffolding of self-belief of resilience so I think that's a bit of a shortcut I think perhaps it's harder if you didn't have parents who where you didn't achieve much academically and you believe that that's the way to help maybe break a cycle of poverty or break a cycle of attainment or achievement. It's a big leap to ask a parent to say, well, let's focus on the intrinsic qualities as opposed to the extrinsic achievement. It's a really big leap, isn't it? Oh, it's massive. And your listeners could be listening to this saying, I so believe in that, but I'm really finding it difficult to actually implement because school is sending me homework. They're saying that my child has got to get them done. We get sort of sucked into that. And I do get it. I think it's just making sure that you surround yourself as best you can with other like-minded parents so that you can have those conversations about, gosh, I'm finding it really difficult. Sophie's taking her SATs a year two sats and everyone seems to be getting pressured about it and I'm trying not to get sucked into it or whatever that might be. But I think if we're focusing in on those skills around confidence, it's not a unique thing that we start doing only when our children are at school. We can start building that confidence when our children are really young. I guess what I'm saying is that they're not mutually exclusive, but I do think if you've got to focus on one thing first, it is really making sure that you build that resilience and that confidence and that self-belief because that will actually propel them academically far more than rote practice and skills will. 
fear, isn't it? So much of how we push our children academically is fear-based. You have to do this or else. I remember someone in my family coming to me really distressed at 11 saying that if she didn't do well in this exam, her life would be over and found that unbelievably heartbreaking. And I know that's the case for loads of children around that age. They deeply believe that these exams or this test is going to determine the outcome for the rest of their life. And oftentimes they have been told that at school or even by parents. Yeah. And I think that that certainly fuels into the rise of anxiety. It's not the reason itself. How would you not feel anxious about that? If someone said to me, Zoe, this podcast that you're doing is going to determine, you know, the rest of the future, I would be shaking with anxiety. And I do think it's probably the workplace, I feel, has probably changed quite substantially. So previously, the way that you were sort of screened in terms of CVs would have been very much on your academic skills. But I do think from an employer's perspective, it is different. They're looking for what they call the soft skill. They're not soft skills, they're the life skills, but they're looking for those bits because so many of the jobs and the roles that we have are all about how you're able to cope with adversity, change management, all of these sort of aspects and people and influence and communicate and teams that you can be the most qualified. And there are companies that actively do not recruit people with degrees and do not recruit people with first-class honours because they don't want that. They want something that's much broader. But it takes a huge amount of being really assured in your own parenting to not get sucked in. It really does. So we talked about this rise in anxiety and we're talking about one way to help our children and ourselves. You know, I think we talked about parental anxiety. It's the same conversation in many ways, isn't it? It's to be clear on your values and to really come back to, you know, what are the skills that I am trying to instill in my child around confidence and self-belief? And how do we actually do that? If someone's like, yes, I'm on board. I want to help my teenager, let's say, develop more resilience. You know, when they do something wrong, they're having a meltdown. You know, they're feeling really anxious about a friendship or whatever it is. How does a parent actively step in and support to build those resilience muscles? There's probably two things that I would say. The first one is just check in on ourselves and shift our focus away from fixer to more coaching. Let me give you an example. So let's say your child comes home and they say, oh, nobody played with me at playtime. I was all on my own. Now that triggers our own inner child and whatever that moment might have been when we were in the playground and felt that we're on our own. And of course, as parents, we don't want to see our children in pain. We don't want that. So quite often before we realize it, we've gone into fix it mode. So why did you not go and play with so-and-so? Did you not speak to a teacher? The first thing that I would say is if we want to build resilience, it's about our children feeling that they are capable of resolving their own problems. First thing is being able to recognize that we might not be able to have that conversation with them immediately. If they're in that full emotional brain and they're feeling overwhelmed, help them unpack, help them get it all out, the tears, the tantrums, anything that they need to do. And then when they've gone from emotional brain and they're a little bit more charged up, and that might mean that you don't have the conversation immediately, but just say to them, you're going to come back to it. Then have a conversation about, I could see that that really upset you and you felt very alone, that nobody cared. If that was to happen again, 
what might you be able to do? What might you do next time? So you're beginning to encourage them to think about what they can do for themselves rather than this idea that we need to tell them what to do. Because again, the whole definition of resilience is the ability to bounce back from setbacks. So that was a setback. Let's now think about how can we bounce back? So that would be the first bit that I would say is a crucial bit. And then the other bit, which helps with confidence, resilience, and in terms of anxiety, and it's the same for us anyway, is I think it's really important that we begin to have those conversations with our children about their internal chatter. So helping them understand that they have an internal dialogue, that it narrates their day. And when they're feeling overwhelmed about something or not feeling particularly confident, that chatter can be particularly loud, that sort of nobody wants to play with me. I'm not liked. I can't ask that person because they might not say yes. If I do that and it doesn't go to plan, then they'll laugh at me. It's helping them understand what is that narrative that comes up in the situations that our children feel overwhelmed or don't feel that they can cope and helping them understand that there's two sides. There's that critic, the inner ogre. Some books will talk about it being the inner bully, but there's that side of the chatter, but there's also an alternative side, which is the voice of their cheerleader, their best self, their best friend, which isn't rah, rah, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. You can do anything. That's the pragmatic side that says, I know this feels really scary, but there are people here to help you. I know you feel like you can't do this, but you did something similar. And once you got started, you were all right. So it's helping them, first of all, be able to identify that chatter from the inner critic. And it isn't about that's negative and this is positive. It's much more about let's identify what's holding us back. What's that belief system in that narrative? And how could we look at it in a different way? How would you start to introduce that? So I've got a seven-year-old. How would you start to introduce that idea of voices in heads? I think certainly seven-year-old, absolutely prime time to have that. Just talk about we all have these little conversations. So particularly when they're coming to you, and that doesn't even necessarily mean that it's something that they're anxious about, but something that's upset them. Just say, we all have these little chat, 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 chat in our head. And you might be thinking right now, I'm so cross that you've said it's time to go to bed because it's not fair. And I was really enjoying this. And I don't see why I should go to bed now. So that they're beginning, it doesn't need to be a big kind of conversation, but it's beginning to drip feed this notion that we have these little conversations in our head. It's really normal. And it's being able to recognize what that is. Because quite often with children who struggle, who are anxious, that's the bit that prevents them from falling asleep at night, because that chatter becomes so loud that they can't switch it off. So the sooner we have those conversations, the easier it is. It's really interesting you bring up sleep because I wonder if that's linked to what we were talking about at the top of the conversation is this sort of always on. Is it linked that if children are sort of always on, always doing, always with a screen or at a club or doing homework, that then maybe the first time they get to hear that themselves is when they lie down to sleep and then they can't sleep. Do you think that's what's going on? Totally. And I think that's part of the problem. That's part of the busyness of our lives. And it's the same for us as adults. How many times have we avoided dealing with that chatter in our head? We've made ourselves supremely busy. We've decided we want to clean the Tupperware cupboard, or we've decided that we're now suddenly going to do all of these things because we want to avoid that chatter. So absolutely, which is why I'm a real advocate that we have to look at our children's weekly schedule and at the weekends and actually make a really cold, hard decision. Do they need to be doing these activities? Because they should have time when they come home 
from preschool, nursery or school to be able to do nothing because then they can experience that chatter is there rather than the first time that they're alone with that chatter is when they're trying to go to sleep. What's the impact on lack of sleep? I think I heard you talk about this somewhere that when you go to schools, a lot of the children, you'll ask them how many struggle to get to sleep and the majority will put their hand up. What's the impact of that? Well, the impact is lots of things, but you're right. So when I go into schools, between 75 and 95% of the children will put their hands up when I say, does anyone here struggle to go to sleep at night? And that's time in, time out. Every single school I've been to, that happens. There's lots of impact. There's, you know, sleep has functions of restoring our brain, consolidating what we've learned, as well as restoring our body. So there's the obvious bit. And certainly where you've got children where there's massive sleep issues, that can obviously impact their growth because growth hormones are secreted at nighttime. So there's that sort of bit. But the bigger impact for most children, I'd say, is that actually it's about that emotional regulation. They don't get that switch off. So they're already on that heightened emotional barometer from the beginning. The same for us. You know, if we haven't had that ability to just rest and we've been so full in our head for ages before we've fallen asleep, it just makes the whole navigating the day and managing anxieties or that confidence or that resilience so much more difficult. What I'm hearing you saying is that a really important part of helping our children develop resilience against anxiety is downtime. When I give my kids downtime, I just hear, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. (laughs) And then I do often step in and go, why don't we do some colouring? And I know the theory that it's good for them to get bored, but I just can't bear that I'm bored whining. Have you got any tips of when we give our kids this space, how do they feel it like my kids are not going to sit there and meditate or read a book like I would. That's how I get my downtime. So what does that practically look like? You know, we've all been there. I've got two children. I remember those, oh, this is just so boring. The thing is, eventually they will become more creative. And I am a reformed fixer. I am a massive control enthusiast. So I know what it's like. I would naturally want to go in and say, well, let's do this. And I've organized stations on the table for you to do X, Y, and Z. And that absolutely doesn't help. But I think part of it is just being able to recognize if that's the way that it's been, if your children have been supremely busy, then just introduce short periods of time of just unstructure. So whether that's getting in from school at 4.15 and between 4.15 and 4.30, you just crack on with whatever you're going to do and we leave it unstructured for them. And then we look at stretching it out further and further. So just start small. Don't feel that you've suddenly got to go off and say, right, I need to have some unstructured time for them and go large on it because they'll struggle and you'll find it difficult with it because no one wants to hear their children saying how bored they are and they're constantly pestering us. So that is counterintuitive. So start small and begin to build up. In an ideal world, what would you want a child or a teen to be doing in that downtime? Are they sort of playing, reading? I guess it's so different for different ages, but it'd be really helpful to just share that practically. I think for teens, it's probably about maybe reading and just being, whether they're someone that's creative and they've got a creative outlet that they can use, whether they're physical and that means jumping on a trampoline or doing something like that, but it's not on devices. And I'm not saying that because I'm anti-devices, but what tends to happen is, for example, we think we're decompressing or our children think they're decompressing by maybe watching some television or 
streaming something or watching an episode. But actually, all we've done is press pause on the internal chatter. So that doesn't do anything at all in terms of then when they switch that program off, they haven't then processed things. What we've got to be thinking, I guess, in our head is that I want to help them create an environment that they're able to just work through whatever it is that's in their head. And if that's doodling, if that's cooking, if that's jumping on a trampoline, going to see a friend, flicking through a magazine, reading a book, then great. That's really what we want them to be able to do. And will most children want to work that stuff out through play, even into teenage years? Quite often they do. And actually, you know, that's where I think we can, when we have those opportunities to play with our children and maybe they're still in that sort of making tea sets or we're cooking together, chopping vegetables or anything like that, that's often where the conversations will come out. You know, lots of people will say, you know, my teenager just won't talk to me. There's clearly something wrong, but they're just not opening up about what the issues are. If we can create opportunities where we are playing or doing when we're side by side, it's not face to face, that does not help. But if we're side by side, that's when things come out. That's when if you go for a walk or you're chopping vegetables together, that sort of stuff usually comes out then. When a child then begins to open up, you've talked really, really clearly about trying, even though it's so hard not to fix, to hold space, to help children realize that they can solve their own problems. But when do we know my teenager or maybe my preteen has just got some worries or actually this seems really overwhelming? Like, could this be an anxiety disorder? Do I need to get some more help? How do we know where on earth our child might be on that scale and when they might need more support than just us as a parent could give them? The reality is it's normal for everyone to feel anxious at periods of time. So that is normal. That's the first thing. Where I think we need to worry is where that anxiety interferes with them being able to live their life ordinarily. So you've got a child who's refusing to go into school. You've got a child who's avoiding certain social situations because it builds up their anxiety. And it's a social situation that is crucial, you know, making new friends. So it's when they're not living life ordinarily, that's where you want to get some help. And that doesn't necessarily even mean that you need to get them diagnosed or you need to get a therapist in, but that's where you need to sort of look actively for some additional support. That was what I would say, but it's also framing it within this notion that actually all children will experience periods of time. For example, if they've got SATs or exams, I would expect them to feel anxious. In fact, I'd be worried if they weren't. So that's normal. And we just help and support them through that. For me, the two most common signs that you've got a child that's anxious is that they're often complaining of a tummy ache, particularly younger children will often say that they've got a tummy ache and they're struggling to fall asleep at night. There'll be other things, there might be aspects of control that you're starting to see, but those two are really, for me, the classic things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's interfering with their life. But then it's looking at, mm, are they avoiding situations? Are they saying, thank you, mummy, daddy, for offering me the opportunity to do that, but no, thank you, I don't want to do it because it's an avoidance tactic. And some children will get, will be really obvious and they'll say, oh, I'm really worried about this or this makes me feel nervous. Others might just get angry and lash out, look like they're being defiant, but that's just them saying, oh my God, you're backing me into a corner and I don't want to do this. So I'm going to come out fighting. It's not going to be an obvious, I'm worried. What's the tummy ache thing about? Because I've heard this a lot and, and I know that this is quite a common thing. What's the link? What's the mind-body link there? 
Well, there's been lots of sort of evidence that suggests that, you know, our gut is like our second brain. And so that's where a lot of it can kind of come from. But I also think that anxiety, in essence, is a stress response. It's our fight or flight. And what our body is basically doing is it's perceiving a threat and it's preparing yourself to fight, as in sending resources to your arms and muscles to fight or your legs to flee. What then happens is your body literally switches the lights off for every other function other than those muscles. And one of the greatest users of oxygenated blood is your stomach. That's why anxious children need to go to the toilet a lot. That's why they might complain of tummy ache or feel sick because we're switching off a function and that that often manifests itself. And if you've ever done things like glitter jars, which I love, when you've done one of those glitter jars, if you then shake it, so basically a bottle of water and then you put like two or three tubes of glitter in it and then you shake it, is quite often with an anxious child, if you shake that glitter and you say to them, is that how your tummy feels? That's a really great way of them being able to connect with this feeling of what's going on in their stomach, whether it's butterflies or nausea, and that glitter swirling around. It helps us find a common language with them around how it makes them feel. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? And that's why, of course, we can get runny stomach or, you know, people even say like, you know, I've got butterflies, don't they? Or I feel it in my gut. It's so linked. And if someone's got a a child going, I've got a tummy ache, I don't want to go to school. Do we validate that? Yes, you have got a tummy ache, but you still have to go to school. How does someone handle that? I think definitely we have to start off by acknowledging it. And that's the same for anything. You know, I'm a strong believer that every emotion is valid. We might not necessarily want them. But, you know, we don't particularly like feeling anxious. So I think we need to validate our child's experience in that moment. And then depending on how emotionally charged it is, if they're emotionally charged, they're thinking from their primitive brain and there's no point trying to have a conversation. But you can later have a conversation. I've noticed that you often have tummy ache in the morning and that you don't want to go to school. And I wondered when we have these feelings, they show up in all parts of our body. And sometimes when we're feeling a bit nervous, it can show up in our tummy. Do you think that that might be part of it? What are the things that you might be nervous about? So we can have that conversation where they felt heard and validated and we've confirmed absolutely that's how you're feeling. But we're then trying to kind of explore it. And where else are you noticing it? I think that's a really great way of beginning to have that conversation because we want to normalize it. It's okay to feel nervous. And maybe it's about the academic work. Maybe it's about friendships. And then we can start having those conversations about, okay, well, how can we make it feel less upsetting in our tummy? It's so helpful. And I just really want to underscore this idea that I hear time and time and time again, which is every emotion is valid. And because we validate an emotion doesn't mean that we're making it worse. Because of a lot of us current parents grew up in the 80s where the idea was sort of just ignore anything that was negative. And let's just (laughs) focus on, I think it can be a real stretch to think, well, hang on a minute, if I validate the sadness, isn't that making it real and bigger? And what I'm hearing you say is absolutely the opposite. And I think that we often worry if we validate the anxiety and we say that you're feeling worried or you're feeling anxious or you're nervous, that we often worry that are we creating anxiety? Are we actually taking a child who's perfectly just worrying ordinarily and making them into an anxious child? But we're not because so many children feel alone with it. And I'll tell you why I think it's so important is that when I go into schools, And I will ask and I'll begin to have the conversation about the internal chatter and that we have this internal dialogue. And the comments that children make 
when they're in their form, maybe there's 30 children or I've done it with a year group of 100. And they'll say things like, I know this is a bit embarrassing, but, you know, I get really scared of the dark. This 11, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, I'm really scared of the dark. And then someone else will go, oh, my God, so do I. And then suddenly it's I'm not alone. And I think that's the reason why it's so important to emphasise so that they don't feel that there's something wrong with them, that there's something odd and that no one else experiences it. I know this to be true in my own experience because something that I do is I say to my girls who are two and six, nearly seven, I had that when I was your age. Even if I didn't, sometimes I say, oh, yes, I had that when I was your age. And now my seven-year-old will say, mummy, this girl didn't talk to me in the playground and it made me really sad today. Did you have that when you were little? And I know it's like, ah, I can see now how reassuring that is for her that she now asks me, did you have that? Because she wants to know the answer to that question. Am I alone? Is this okay? Is this normal? I know that to be absolutely true that, you know, when we can make our children feel not alone with it, it's just such a diffuser, isn't it? I guess for a lot of the anxiety that, that we've been talking. Yes, because I think it's really important that they don't feel that they're the only one experiencing it. And also that there are ways that they can manage it. And it's that acknowledgement that you might have a child who is an anxious child by nature. They are warriors. It's not a glass half full, glass half empty. This one's positive, this one. It's not, that's just their makeup. That doesn't mean that they're going to live an unfulfilled life and they're not going to be able to do things, but they just recognize that they put things in place. It's their toolbox and they know which tools that they've got. I've got two children. My eldest doesn't worry at all, really. My daughter is naturally a warrior. So she goes to that, you know, we're on holiday for the first time in, in quite a while. And I sat next to her on the plane. She could have literally killed her off the top. She was literally that nervous. But she knows what she needs to do to help manage those anxieties. And so it's a case of recognizing that some situations she feels particularly overwhelmed in. She knows what she needs to do to help herself. And she accepts that that's part of who she is. And that over time, the more she does some of these things, the easier it will become. My six-year-old is exactly the same. She was born worried. I've got photos of her as a baby and she looks worried. (laughs) She worries. You know, there was an accident on the school run the other day. And, you know, we talked about it. We didn't see anything, but there was ambulance. Clearly something had happened. And, you know, I said, this looks like an accident and this is why we had to be really safe. And, you know, I spoke about it because I guess that they would clock that and be thinking about it. And then I thought that was done and dusted. And about two nights later, I get called up at about 10 p.m. And she says, mummy, I'm so worried about that person in the accident. I've been thinking about them nonstop. Do you think they're okay? Do you think we can call the hospital? And I was like, wow, like what an amazing quality this is, you know, that compassion and that care, but also I've got to help her manage that worry. And I had no idea that she'd been thinking about this for two days. It's incredible. I think it's a beautiful quality, a really beautiful quality, that care. And I'm sure that there'll be an activist in there somewhere for her. You know, I think lots of activists have that real sensitivity to the world and to other people's pains, but I've got to help her be able to manage that as well, that sensitivity and worry and care. And it is quite common that we'll see children who are very sensitive because, of course, when you're a real empath, you're then placing yourself in that situation, how that would feel. So that's bound to then create some sort of worry because, of course, she's thinking, I hope that person's okay. And so it is being able to recognise that, but also recognise that that makes them, and it sounds super cliched, but that will be her superpower. 
That will be why she'll be a great friend. But it will also mean potentially where she could have, you know, sensitive children can sometimes, because they're so empathetic, also find friendships difficult sometimes because they can't understand why someone would treat them in an unkind way, because of course they would never do that. So it's all of this sort of the mix, but it's part of what makes them who they are, what's so wonderful about them. And I'm glad you brought up friendships because I think bullying and friendships are a big thing that lots of people, parents talk about. And I think, is there a link between the anxiety that we're talking about in the whole episode and bullying and friendships? And how do we help our children navigate that? I think it would be really good to spend some time there. I definitely think that there is a bit of a relationship with those aspects because friendships is around that sort of whole confidence and self-belief and knowing who they are. And one of the things that I love as an activity to do, which is really easy to create at home. So you've got Jenga, the game, and each of the Jenga, you've got these tiles, these different blocks. And you can just basically put what are the qualities that make a good friendship? So you can write kindness, sharing, turn-taking, humor, trustworthy, loyalty, whatever it is. So you've basically got a whole tower and each one has got a quality of a good friendship. So the idea is you can say to your children, look, this Jenga tower is a good friendship. We don't need every single quality for that to be a good friendship. But if we start removing the tiles without putting them on the top, we'll reach a tipping point where we've removed so many that that's no longer a friendship, it's collapsed. So it's being able to recognize what are the qualities that make a good friendship. You don't need every single quality. What are our qualities? Because you can then spread out all of the Jenga blocks and say, pick out the qualities that your top eight qualities that make you a supremely great friend. And then ask them to look at, you know, when they're struggling with certain friends, can you see qualities there of this particular friend? What qualities do they have so that they can begin to discern what is a good friendship and what isn't a good friendship? And that isn't about, I'm not a believer of saying you can't play with that person or that person's an unkind person. Because if we're adopting Carol Dweck's growth mindset, it means that people don't stay that way, that they're being unkind to you for a reason. They might be bullying for a reason. But when we start having those conversations, then we help our children be able to recognize what is a good friendship and what isn't. And actually then begin to use their voice and say, I don't like playing with you when you do that to me because that makes me feel I'm going to go and play with someone else. I love that exercise. I think I'm going to do that. And I'm wondering... How to say someone's, you know, 13-year-old girl comes home and says, you know, so-and-so called me X, Y, Z. And you find that quite shocking as the parent. You're thinking, what? How would you handle that conversation? I think it's around unpicking how it made them feel because I think a lot of the language that gets used can often be misleading. So we'll interpret it in a particular way. The narrative and the language that gets used nowadays is slightly different. So we've got to take our shock and horror out of it and really try to unpick how it's made our child feel, how common is this language being used with others and what do they want to do about it? Is this something that's regular? Because when we think about bullying, I think this is part of the issue is that bullying, the word bully is often slightly overused. But in essence, it's the sustained, prolonged, targeted unkindness. So it's helping our children be able to bounce back from just an unkind comment to being able to recognize actually this person has selected me and is sustained and prolonged 
chip, chip, chipping away. And sometimes it's a really obvious bullying and straightforward. And otherwise, sometimes it is literally a chipping away that is just as toxic. So it's being able to recognize, is this just one a one-off? How's it made us feel? What do they feel that they need to do about it? Is this being more sustained? And actually that that isn't okay. And how might we now look at resolving it? What might be the next things that we need to do? I think that's a really helpful distinction, isn't it? Because my little seven-year-old will come home almost every day and say something like, so-and-so said they didn't like my picture. That's so mean. And I have to talk to her about, well, actually, that's their opinion. Did you like your picture? This is why I keep doing, Did you like it? She'll go, yeah, I thought it was great. I'm like, okay. So, you know, art is subject. And I think that is a really different conversation than you're saying, like the true definition of bullying, which is that almost abusive, like toxic, like focusing on a target and making someone feel horrific. I always really liked that you said that question, what do you want to do about it? Because it's so tempting as the parent, I'm calling the school, I'm messaging the other parent, gosh, really diving into the fixer, as you were saying, how can we hold that within ourselves? Particularly if, you know, I was bullied at school, it triggers all of that in me. My inner child starts going berserk and I'm trying to hold, you know, the little seven-year-old in front of me. Is there anything that we can do as parents to be able to hold that space? more effectively? I think it's just being, I think there's lots of things. It's making sure that you're surrounded by people that you can have a community of other parents that you can have these honest conversations with. But I also think it's about making sure whatever that cliche is, but that's why our self-care is so crucial because then we can show up knowing that we're showing up for that child in that moment rather than our inner child. I think that's where the whole self-care is so, so important is that we can do that. So you're not going to get it right all of the time. You are going to jump into fix-it mode because you are a parent that wants to protect your child. And if you have that mindset that, you know what, if I can get this right two out of 10 times, fabulous. That's amazing. Don't beat yourself up about the eight times that you jump in. I love that. Those two out of 10 times, those will be building enough resilience, won't it? Absolutely. That feels like such a powerful place to end, actually, just two out of 10 times, just to underscore that. I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give any gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Okay, my head is saying courage, but I don't think it's courage. I think it's just about an inner belief that they're ultimately doing the right thing. I think it's that reflecting inwards and doing what you feel is right and not getting sucked into what you think you should be doing, but that inner belief. We have an instinct as mothers. We absolutely have that instinct. And it's being able to take that belief and that instinct and act on that at the expense of worrying about what anyone else thinks. Amazing. Oh, thank you so much. We've covered so much ground, but I think it's just been absolutely brilliant in terms of talking about anxiety and how we can help our children against this backdrop of this insane world that we find ourselves in today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Zoe, so much for having me. It's been great. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 